It's Tuesday, August 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. In the first case to go to trial of more than 2,000 lawsuits brought on by state and local governments, Johnson & Johnson must pay $572 million to Oklahoma for creating a public nuisance, exaggerating the benefits of painkillers and minimizing addiction risks. Daniel Siegel, senior trials reporter at Law360, joins us for what this ruling means. Next, the lungs of the world are burning. The Amazon rainforest is burning at an unprecedented rate. These fires are not wildfires or caused by climate change. Instead, they are set by farmers and ranchers, clearing existing farmland and increased deforestation. Rachel Feltman, editor at Popular Science, joins us for what to know about these fires. Finally, it was all a hoax. Last week, fear spread in Lancaster, California, that a sniper could be on the loose targeting police. Sheriff Deputy Angel Reynosa put out a call for help that he had been shot, which led to a huge police presence and manhunt for the shooter. But cracks almost immediately began showing in the deputy's story until he admitted he made it all up. Hannah Knowles, reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The opioid crisis has ravaged the state of Oklahoma. It must be abated immediately. For this reason, I am entering an abatement plan that consists of costs totaling $572,102,028 to immediately remediate the nuisance. Joining us now is Daniel Siegel, senior trials reporter at Law360. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Hi, Oscar. Thanks for having me on. We have an interesting verdict in court. Johnson & Johnson has been ordered to pay $572 million to Oklahoma for its part in causing the opioid crisis. The argument was that they marketed this in such a way that really didn't reveal the problems and the potential problems and the addiction problems that could result from taking the opioids. And the state of Oklahoma got a huge victory in this. Daniel, tell us a little bit more about this trial. Well, the state's argument was kind of threefold. You know, it was that Johnson & Johnson, through its subsidiary Janssen, was selling its own opioids. Nucinta, which is the drug to pentadol, and Duragesic, which is fentanyl, which has also been in the news a lot lately. But, you know, those were really not big sellers. But the argument was that they were telling doctors that they weren't addictive or were not highly addictive, citing misleading studies and just generally doing what they could to push sales while kind of skirting the truth in terms of what the facts about the drugs were. Second, these companies were also owned Tasmanian Alkaloids and Naramco, which were companies that made the raw ingredients other drug makers use. So Purdue Pharma, which makes uh, OxyContin, they were buying their raw ingredients from these companies owned by Johnson & Johnson. J&J was doing what's called unbranded marketing, which was just telling consumers opioids are good in general, not connected to their own drugs not as regulated, and just sort of generally saying, buy more opioids, opioids are good. Johnson & Johnson at one point was not the only company involved in this. There were a few others, but they settled out with the state of Oklahoma, leading Johnson & Johnson to be the sole defendant in this. That's right. And, you know, Purdue, who I already mentioned, has sort of been the number one company in the news. Uh, they have faced criminal actions, actually. And, you know, OxyContin, OxyCodone has sort of been I would say the number one driving drug and Tiva Pharmaceuticals, which is another company, you know, they, Purdue paid $270 million. Tiva paid $85 million before trial. 
to uh, resolve the cases against them. And it did leave kind of an interesting situation where J&J probably had less of the market than these two other companies, but they are getting held responsible for the entire crisis in this ruling. Yeah, and Oklahoma wasn't necessarily seeking monetary damages, but they wanted $17 billion to go into a fund that would help employ a range of different measures, public education campaigns, addiction treatment services. That's really where they were going, almost like reimbursing the state for the cost of the crisis that had already occurred. That's exactly right, and that's exactly how to think about it. This is under something called public nuisance law. This is kind of a new use of it. Usually it would be for something like, for example, a farm is polluting a river or something. It's you know, used to fix some sort of you know, public damage, public nuisance. And in this case, they're saying the public damage is all these people who are you know, wrongly being addicted to opioids. And so whatever it costs to fix that problem is the damage they were seeking. As you mentioned, they were seeking a $17 billion funding over 30 years. And the judge actually explicitly said in his written ruling, you know, the $572 million, that's for year one. And he basically was just saying, there's no way we can say what will be needed in years two, three, four, and on. So if they want more funding in the future, they're going to have to go to the legislature or come back or do something at that point. For Johnson & Johnson's part, what were they arguing? I know they said that it wasn't necessarily just their drugs, that there's a lot of illegal heroin and fentanyl, and that's what really caused the crisis. They would argue, you know, one, that they had a very small amount of market share for their actual branded opioids. Two, as you mentioned, that, you know, much of this problem is illegal drugs, or, for example, that the state itself didn't do enough to identify and restrict doctors who were illegally prescribing, you know, massive amounts of opioids. And, you know, the other argument they, they made a lot, especially as relating to their supplying of opioid ingredients, is that this is all extremely regulated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, drug enforcement. They regulate it. They're just doing what they're allowed to do by the law. And what happens after isn't really their fault. There was over 2,000 lawsuits that were filed from different uh, states and local governments with regards to the opioid crisis. This was the first one that went to trial and we have our verdict now. The next arena for this will be in Cleveland where a bunch of lawsuits are kind of lumped together, but it would be another, another similar thing where they're trying to get these opioid companies on the hook for it. I mean, that's going to be a little different. It's in federal court. It's what's called a multi-district litigation or MDL. And it is bringing together counties, governments from across the nation. Again, this is just, it's all big litigation like this. Every piece of information sort of fills in part of the puzzle. J&J is not going to go quietly. They are not just going to pay this. They're going to appeal all the way to the Oklahoma Supreme Court and likely the U.S. Supreme Court if needed. But if they keep losing it, at some point, it will sort of change the picture. And I think drug companies will have to start looking at settling Uh, even more seriously. Johnson & Johnson is having a tough time. They're facing thousands of lawsuits, not just from this, different things with uh, their signature baby powder product, their pelvic mesh things and hip devices. They're just facing a ton of lawsuits all over the place. And these little things look like they just keep chipping away at them. A big part of it is that, you know, J&J, more so than I would say most companies in its uh, position, it is willing to go to trial. If you ask them, they would say, we believe our products are safe. We believe what we did was okay. And we are not going to stop fighting just because of a few bad verdicts. And at least in the talc uh, trials, they've had some success in getting verdicts overturned on appeal. And so, you know, what looked like huge, huge dollar amount damages, they come down or they get reversed. And in the long run, I I don't think we can say yet whether or not this is the right move by them. But certainly it, it creates a lot of headlines. Daniel Siegel, senior trials reporter at Law360. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thanks so much for having me.
So there is, you know, some concern that any outward pressure from a conservation standpoint may actually uh, make things worse from a, a policy perspective, that maybe we need to think more about working more holistically with these agricultural endeavors in the Amazon. Joining us now is Rachel Feltman, editor at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Amazon rainforest is burning right now. There have been more than 74,000 fires across Brazil this year and nearly 40,000 fires across the Amazon specifically. This is all just this year. Everybody I am imagining has seen the reports of this toxic smoke and it's so thick that its darkness is now falling hours before the sun sets in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It's really becoming a big catastrophe right now. And one of the most interesting things is that these fires are not uh, wildfires. Um, This has a lot to do with farmers. Uh, This has a lot to do with deforestation and farmers starting these fires. Tell us a little bit about this, Rachel. Yeah, as you were saying, what's interesting about these is that they're not wildfires, which, you know, coming from a U.S. perspective is very different because we've gotten very used to talking about wildfires in the last couple of years. We know that California especially has had a crazy wildfire seasons, and we know that climate change and increased drought is a part of that. So looking at what's happening in the Amazon, that is a really important distinction to make, that these are fires that people are setting, which sounds very disturbing from an outsider's perspective. And it's true that some of it probably has to do with a surge in in deforestation, especially uh, kind of emboldened by the new leadership in the country. The the president who was elected uh, earlier this year is very much in favor of of more of the Amazon being used for uh, cattle farming and and other business agricultural purposes. So uh, there is this concern that the kind of large-scale burning of forested land that's used to clear it for cattle might be becoming more common, that might be to blame. But it's also important to distinguish that from the everyday, very well understood methods of this land burning that do support small farms and, you know, do make it possible for local ecosystems and for indigenous people to to thrive. So it's a much more complicated issue than these drought-fueled wildfires in the U.S. So landowners are cutting down the trees, they're leaving the wood to dry, and then, then they later put it to fire so it can fertilize the, the soil, it clears the land. I mean, it's hard to get rid of so much of that biomass other than doing it this way. But what's happening right now? Did it go get out of control? Did, were they doing these in smaller scales and then it just kind of caught on all over the place? So why is it such a huge problem? So that's kind of an interesting question because, you know, we do see that the number of fires is high, but we don't have records on the number of fires going that far back. And the uptick isn't as extreme as some of the uh, media coverage uh, makes it sound. So it is definitely a problem. There's no question there. We absolutely should be concerned about the current fire situation in the Amazon. But it's not really clear yet whether this is a trend, you know, whether this is due to increase in, uh, you know, big agricultural deforestation. So it's really not clear yet. There's there's so much more we, we need to figure out. And for now, all, all we know is that it does seem like there are more of these fires than, uh, than we would want there to be. Well, these fires did not start because of climate change per se, or they're not wildfires themselves. It does have a lot of 
potential to impact the world just because the Amazon is so important. It's been referred to as the lungs of the earth because we get so much oxygen out of there and it also takes in so much CO2. So a lot of people have been saying that this could have large scale impacts for climate change. And as I said, for the world, if too much of the rainforest burns down. Right. And, you know, it's not so much about what is happening right now at this moment as, you know, is this something that's going to keep getting worse and worse? And again, it's difficult because the president of Brazil very much has a history of really resenting any international involvement and intervention when it comes to the Amazon. So there is, you know, some concern that any outward pressure from a conservation standpoint may actually uh, make things worse from a, a policy perspective, that maybe we need to think more about working more holistically with these agricultural endeavors in the Amazon. But it's true that, you know, the Amazon is important globally. It, it is not just important to uh, the people who live there or the, the people who live nearby. It does take in a lot of carbon. It provides a lot of oxygen. It, you know, is a thriving ecosystem with many um, animals and that would be would miss if they were gone. Right, right. So, and, you know, climate change is not to blame for these fires, but the reason this is the time of year that these intentional fires tend to be more numerous and in some cases start wildfires is because, you know, there is a relatively dry season in the Amazon. And of course, as is the case pretty much everywhere, there is concern that climate change will increase drought and will make those dry seasons drier. So, you know, there is cause for concern in terms of these intentional fires more often leading to unintentional wildfires if a drought becomes more severe. Rachel Feltman, editor at Popular Science, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There was no sniper, no shots fired, and no gunshot injury sustained to his shoulder. Completely fabricated. Reynosa failed to provide information regarding his motivation for this act. Joining us now is Hannah Knowles, reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me. We have a crazy story about a sheriff's deputy in Los Angeles, California. Uh, this started last week. There was He made a call, said he got shot by a sniper, and immediately the police response uh, went into full force. SWAT team members went out to the building where the officer said he thinks the shot came from. And that whole night, everybody was on edge looking for a gunman. Again, one of these other stories of somebody shooting a police officer. But then the story started to fall apart pretty quickly. And now we find out that this whole thing is a hoax. Hannah, help us out with this story. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like some kind of holes in this deputy story started emerging. Like, you know, he went to the emergency room and he didn't have visible wounds. Um, you know, they were investigating the incident and the surveillance footage didn't back him up. The witnesses weren't backing him up. And then finally on um, Saturday, investigators had an interview, like a follow-up interview with this deputy to check in on his wounds and just confirm his statements. And that's when he actually admitted that he'd made the entire thing up. And he had, there were these holes in his uniform and he had actually cut them himself. They were not made by a bullet. And so he, he told investigators that this weekend. Yeah, his name is Angel Reynosa. He's a 21-year-old trainee in the police department there. And 
it, I mean, yeah, it, things just weren't adding up. And this building that was across the street from where he said he got shot was overlooking the police station. And I think they housed uh, like mentally ill people there in that apartment complex. And right away, everybody was saying, oh, my God, you know, it's horrible that it was coming from there. They locked the building down. They were evacuating people because they were going door to door. And it was an intense situation. There was hundreds of officers that came out to investigate this when it happened. And as I said, the, the cracks started showing thereafter. The police department for themselves even posted to, uh, to Facebook saying, Angry, embarrassed, furious, unbelievable, ashamed. Those are the words that were circulating through the station's hallway in Lancaster, California, where it was hap- where this happened. And so it just looks like a big black eye on the police department there, even just even because this one guy was uh, perpetrating this hoax. Yeah, no, I mean, and they said that at the press conference this weekend too. They said they were really disappointed, and they don't really understand why this guy did it. Um, He didn't really explain his motive for why he would make this whole thing up. What else, what else did they say at the at the press conference? Because everybody was looking for as much information they can. Uh, Even the local community, you know, they didn't know if there was still a gunman loose. The press conference mainly just went over, uh, you know, it, it recapped the, like you said, this massive effort that went into finding this gunman that wasn't actually there. So they really discussed like why um, this is such a terrible thing to do because all these resources were deployed and so they kind of laid all that out and then they um, you know they discussed the interview where the deputy had admitted it was all false um, and then expressed their you know extreme uh, disappointment that this could happen. Yeah, the other uh, questions are even arising from that that press conference specifically is that police officials had this press conference at 11 p.m. on a Saturday night. I, I think their line was that they wanted to get the word out as soon as they they knew and were able to confirm that it was a hoax. But a lot of other people were kind of taken aback by it, saying, why are you trying to bury such a huge story in the middle of the night, practically? Here's a little piece of that Saturday press conference where the captain of the Sheriff's Homicide Bureau, Kent Wagner, said that Deputy Angel Reynoso's story was completely fabricated. Detectives saw no visible injury to Reynosa's shoulder. During the subsequent interview, Angel Reynosa admitted that he was not shot at from the apartment complex area as he previously claimed. He also told investigators that he had caused the holes in his uniform shirt by cutting it with a knife. There was no sniper, no shots fired, and no gunshot injury sustained to his shoulder. Completely fabricated. Reynosa failed to provide information regarding his motivation for this act. The sheriff's deputy now is going to be fired. Is there going to be any other disciplinary action taken against him? There's a criminal investigation, and so the district attorney might file charges. It's not totally clear what the charges would be, but to falsely create an emergency or report an emergency, there are definitely potentially like criminal repercussions that could come from that. Hannah Knowles, Washington Post reporter, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.